This afternoon, I want to offer you a few words uh, on the Four Noble Truths, the foundation of the Buddha's teaching. After uh, two days of intensive meditation, I think you can take them now. They're sometimes bitter pills, especially in that first noble truth. Let me read it to you. Now this, monks, yogis, is the noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering, aging is suffering, illness is suffering. Separation from what is pleasant is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. Everything subject to impermanence is suffering. Everything subject to impermanence is suffering. That just about takes in the whole show. This is the this is the fine print in your lease on life. Usually nobody reads it, you know, and uh, otherwise, who would sign up? What it's basically saying, what the Buddha is saying, and clearly saying is that this incarnation, this existence is fragile. It, um, it's kind of dangerous. It's not that much fun. Um, Buddhism often gets criticized for being negative, and a lot of it has to do with that first noble truth that the Buddha proclaimed. But I don't see it as negative. I see it as realistic. And in fact, an antidote to our usual idealism and the the false notion that we could somehow perfect this life and make everything secure, unchanging, um, live happily ever after, basically. You know, that's the American dream. You would have better luck in in, uh, dying happily ever after, I think. Living happily ever after? Very uh, little account of it. Uh, Hardly anybody ever has proclaimed such a thing. Dukkha, the first noble truth of Dukkha, is often translated as suffering, but a better term is unsatisfactoriness. Um, And also, the notion in the term dukkha implies uh, both impermanence and a kind of uh, imperfection that exists uh, in in our lives. And this is not to say that happiness is not available. The Buddha says, yes, happiness is available. There's a happiness of family life. There's a happiness of renunciation. There's a happiness of sense pleasures. But they are all impermanent and contain within them the seeds of their disappearance and therefore creators of suffering. He even categorizes one form of dukkha as Sukha dukkha, and that is the suffering that is inherent in 
delight and pleasure. As he said, and, and Grove gave me this quote to, today when we were talking about it, the truth of dukkha must be explored to its end. The truth uh, of dukkha, to see it clearly and accept it, is really actually very liberating. But difficult. Difficult to see what he's getting at here. This is a a parable or a, a, uh, a way he uses to try to describe what he's, what he's saying. He says, It is difficult to shoot from a distance, arrow after arrow, through a narrow keyhole, and miss not once. It is more difficult to shoot and penetrate with the tip of a hair split a hundred times, a piece of hair similarly split, it is still more difficult to penetrate to the fact that all this is dukkha. Joseph Campbell puts it this way, the first step to understanding life is the recognition of the monstrous nature of the earthly realm as well as its glory. The realization that this is just how it is and cannot be changed. Those who think they know how the universe should have been had they created it without pain, without sorrow, without death, these people are unfit for illumination. (laughs) If you really want to help the world, what you will have to teach is how to live in it as it is, with the joyful sorrow and the sorrowful joy of how it is. Now, some people say I'm really drawn to the first noble truth because of my Jewish heritage. And sometimes I have called it the first noble fetch. <laughs> but now I can fetch in Pali as well as Yiddish, and it's uh, sat- very satisfying. I actually find some relief when I read the first noble truth. Um, if you accept the fact that it's not all supposed to be sweet and happy and full of meaning and without pain, etc. I mean, that's what, that view is what keeps you kind of striving, trying to fix it all, trying to perfect your life. If you accept that, Uh, first noble truth you can relax you don't have to strive so much for perfection and and feel miserable about being happy or being unhappy (laughs) you don't have to feel miserable about being unhappy and and reading that first noble truth you realize that you haven't been singled out for special punishment this is the way it is we're all in this together so I have this litany of uh, sort of the facts of life. I find it very, uh, very relieving, liberating. So I'll offer that to you. First of all, you didn't ask to be born. Or at least you don't remember asking, right? Sometime in, in early childhood, you kind of wake up and, yeah, I'm in a life. Um, 
And everyone is born with a very powerful survival instinct that makes you want more than anything else to stay alive. So you didn't ask to be born and you don't want to die. It's like nature trapped you in this life. You don't get to choose who you're going to be. You don't get to choose the body you will inhabit. I don't remember a catalog of choices being offered. (laughs) Would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? No, you just get the standard issue, human, biped, mid-sized mammal, big forebrain. You don't get to choose your personality. The evolutionary psychologists will tell you that you were all born with a particular temperament to be novelty-seeking or reward-dependent or um, some of the others, uh, pain-avoiding. There are ways in which you have a temperament, and every culture has known that you are born with a feel to you, a, a temper. And the psychologists say whatever part of our personality isn't set at birth will be firmly in place long before we have any choice in the matter or say in the matter in early childhood by uh, our dear parents who, uh, who will set a lifelong neurosis for us. So you don't get to choose your body. You don't get to choose your personality, really. You're not free to be who you are. You're forced to be who you are. And you have to feed this body a few times a day because you want to stay alive. And that means you have to work, think, or type, or schlep, or something, or hunt. And you have to fight gravity every step you take. You're fighting, you're pulling yourself away from the earth step by step. You're not told exactly why you're here or what you're supposed to be doing while you're here. Not exactly. You're given basically enough consciousness to know that you do exist. And that someday you will die, which you very much don't want to do. These are the facts of life. My friend Wavy Gravy says, if you don't have a sense of humor, it's just not funny. (laughs) Nietzsche put it well, he said, God's only excuse is that he doesn't exist. (laughs) I mean, who designed this, you know? Who designed it? Many of uh, the philosophers see the truth of dukkha, the difficulty of, of this incarnation, Artists often see it. Jack Kerouac in, in On the Road, at the end of On the Road, he's driving 
along and he sees a cloud and he sees God's finger coming out of the cloud and pointing at him and saying, go moan, go moan for man. That was, that was his injunction to Kerouac who, who moaned, moaned for uh, all of our suffering. Grove and I were trading, trading Woody Allen quotes and I had copied this down. I had read this in an interview with him after he had done one of his more recent movies. You know, such a successful man. And uh, This was what he said. I don't feel that I'm pessimistic, but I do have a realistic attitude and the hard facts are so brutal and terrifying that each person has his own way of rationalizing that it's not so bad. But it is bad, and the trick is to acknowledge that and still get through. I think a lot of my own suffering, a lot of uh, the suffering of people I talk to and visit with, a lot of our suffering comes from the denial of the first noble truth. A lot of our culture Uh, I remember at a retreat in uh, IMS a few years ago, and I went to one of my teachers and said, you know, I'm really feeling, I'm really down, and I'm, you know, I can't seem to shake it. I'm feeling my age and uh, just kind of suffering about who I am at this age, et cetera, et cetera. And... She said, that's dukkha. And I said, yeah, and? (laughs) You know, give me the fix. Give me the solution. What should I do? I kind of said that, and she said, that's dukkha. Just, you know, that's it. There was no solution. I mean, you know, there was a way to sit with it. I wrote in my journal a line that that often delights me. It says, you don't have to be happy. So, the first noble truth, uh, the Buddha in investigating suffering, which he did, that was what he was determined to do, was find the source of our suffering and to find a cure for it. And in his investigations, he discovered the second noble truth, which is that we, while we may have to suffer because of our biological condition, unless, of course, we have a a radical self-ectomy or something where you don't, where you no longer identify with the body as I, me, mine, or any, you know, part of the psyche as I, me, mine. Aside from that, he saw that the source of a lot of our unnecessary suffering is an untrained mind. And he realized that a lot of our dissatisfaction, a lot of our suffering comes from, not from the fact that we haven't um, acquired our latest, you know, desire or fulfilled our latest desire, but it is the desire wheel itself. It is the wheel of dissatisfaction in the mind itself that 
is the source of so much of our suffering. That was a radical insight. For the most part, you know, he it was original with him. There may have been some in the Hindu religion before him, some some of the mystics and meditators who had realized the same thing, but the Buddha really saw it and saw that if you could take that truth and investigate it, you might find uh, some solace, some, some relief from your suffering. The Buddha also saw that much of our suffering is hardwired. Long before Freud or Darwin uh, or modern psychology, he realized that um, we have these instinctual uh, movements uh, called called instincts, which are um, ruled by pleasant and unpleasant feelings, as Trudy was talking about, that we really, every time we, we feel something pleasant, we want more of it. Every time we feel something difficult or, or uh, painful, we want it to go away. The Buddha called these underlying tendencies, these instinctual uh, patterns in ourselves. And obviously, these patterns are good for survival. They make us take our hand off the stove. or And they make us seek out pleasant experiences, such as eating or procreating, in order for the, ourselves to survive and the species to survive. They are there for obvious reasons. If the pleasure from sex or food was permanent, we would only do them once. We would have sex once and one dinner. And, you know, the fact that they are continually (laughs) impermanent keeps us, you know, eating. Modern neuroscience is finding, uh, revealing the depth of these instincts. Uh, One neuroscientist, Melvin Connor, writes, the motivational portions of the brain, particularly the hypothalamus, have characteristics relevant to the apparent chronic nature of human dissatisfaction. Experiments suggest that our chronic internal state will be a vague mixture of anxiety and desire, best described by the phrase, I want, spoken with or without an object for the verb. That is sort of the default position of the brain, constantly on the alert for threats and opportunities. Again, very good for survival, but the source of so much of our suffering, unrelieved, alert position of the brain, You can see it in meditation. When you really look closely at your mind, you see how many times it wants you to make a little adjustment, even in your your practice. So I'm going to move your attention over there. No, wait a second. Now, maybe I wonder how I'm doing. And, you know, it's a constant kind of checkup of you and the environment. And it can not only be... uh, It's useful for survival, but it can be very irritating. 
and often unnecessary. The second noble truth, the Buddha really says that the source of our unnecessary suffering is an untrained mind. And then the third noble truth is that we can train the mind. And I'm sure you've seen it, even in your short two days of practice here, intensive practice, that you have found the ability to occasionally ignore the train of thoughts that usually comes and you usually latch on to, that you've maybe had a few moments of, I don't have to believe in that thought or that, you know, that uh, feeling. I don't have to go there with it. I can have some freedom from all that deep programming, those instincts, my psychological training, you begin to see that there's actually a different state of mind available. That's really an amazing insight. I mean, most people never see that it's possible to train the mind that way. It's such a gift. And, you know, it's brand new, really, in in our species, uh, these insights. different kind of happiness. I remember uh, Ajahn Amaro, a wonderful British monk, Theravadan monk, who came to live in Northern California when I first uh, interviewed him for the this journal that I work for, I asked him why he'd become a monk, and he said, because I'm a hedonist. And when I first walked into a monastery, I saw that that was the way to real pleasure and deep satisfaction in life, that uh, doing this practice and living that kind of life and not chasing after the usual uh, sources of satisfaction that our culture presents to us. This is Gandhi. I do not believe that a multiplication of wants and machinery contrived to supply them is taking the world a single step nearer to its goal. I wholeheartedly detest this mad desire to destroy distance and time, to increase animal appetites and go to the ends of the earth in search of their satisfaction. If modern civilization stands for all this, and I have understood it to do so, I call it satanic. I remember a few years ago seeing a Newsweek magazine, a cover story, the title of which was, What We Will Want Next. A few years ago, the Dalai Lama visited Berkeley and uh, told the graduates there, prepare your mind to know that life is not easy. And then he cited the Western desire for perfection for, and great expectations and said, 
try to understand that uh, you you know that these these things are not going to lead you to happiness that it's kindness of heart it's compassion it is ease of mind that will lead you to happiness and sokni rinpoche one of my teachers said you westerners you have high class suffering you have so much to choose from and you just cannot decide. You're just so confused by it all. I came up with this uh, new new vow. You know, many Buddhists take the Bodhisattva vow. You know, to, beings are numberless. I vow to save them all. And I, I said, uh, I'm going to take this vow. Desires are endless. I vow to fulfill them all. I call it the Bodhisattva vow. <laughs> But that's why we're all here. I think if there's ever been a, a, a proof of the Four Noble Truths, you know, in, in some deep sense, it's our civilization, which has given us so much material wealth and sensual pleasure and delights. And I mean, we, my father always used to say, we live like kings here, you know. It was, and it's true, we've lived in a lifestyle that for most of history was reserved for, you know, aristocracy and and yet we find ourselves searching and uh, trying to understand what will bring us satisfaction. The Four Noble Truths ends with the Fourth Noble Truth, the, the way to train the mind. First of all, let me, let me just read this, uh, the Buddha saying, the primary insight is that the thirst of craving is the basis of our suffering. The next insight is that by the cooling of this thirst, no more suffering is produced. That's really the second and third noble truths. And so much, I'm always amazed that so much of the training of the mind is really the simple exposing of the mind to itself. It's really just seeing the patterns and how we get hooked, the patterns of thought that neuroscientists call resonating neuronal assemblies. You know, (laughs) the train starts and and we get caught, and we get caught over and over again. And just beginning to see that we aren't producing those, that those are old patterns of thought, or seeing that, you know, thoughts and emotions just come upon us seemingly from nowhere and and we have nothing to do with it, that we don't own them, they aren't, uh, you know, they aren't willed by us. Mm -hmm. To see that is to start to break our identification with them. We see that, you know, a lot of it is, is generic. A lot of what we experience is the human condition. And Starting to see that clearly is really just a leap of of, uh, of understanding. And the main tool is mindfulness, simple awareness of what's going on in the mind. So, the fourth noble truth is the Eightfold Path which is 
divided into three parts, good con- conduct, right livelihood, right, right speech, right action. The meditation uh, process, uh, concentration, uh, mindfulness, right effort. And then the final two, right understanding and right view. And I, uh, as a modern person who really loves to try to understand science and especially the story of evolution, which I think is really giving us a lot of tools uh, to to make the Dharma bloom and make the Dharma much more real and alive in our in ourselves and in our culture. Um, I think right view, right understanding is to realize that when we're trying to train our minds, we're working with brains that were designed for over millions of years for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers, that we're really in a whole new situation in modern times. And that evolution has, you know, done some wonderful things uh, to provide for our survival and designed us quite well. Um, and to say that I, I'm saying that because I, I think we should be very forgiving of ourselves as we as we do this training as we try to relieve our suffering by seeing the way the mind works to realize that it's coming from a long history and uh to forgive ourselves over and over again because we're new at it. Our whole species is new at this game. Uh, we're pioneers, really, at it. 2,500 years is the blink of a blink of an eye in any kind of biological time. I also think that it's very revealing to, to understand that we inherit these this brain and nervous system, you know, and it goes back millions and millions of years through many, perhaps you could call them incarnations in different species. And the, we inherit that karma, those, those forces, those instincts. But that we are, uh, that we actually can find the ability to override those instincts that as humans we have also been given this power and that's what we're developing and we're doing it together we're doing it as a sangha as Thich Nhat Hanh said the next Buddha will be a sangha we're not doing it for ourselves we're on the we're all on the team you know So, we have time for a few reactions, questions, additions. Um, that, was, that was great. I really enjoyed that talk. Um, it reminds me of something that Betsy uh, said, um, that every time something happens in the family, I forget exactly what she said, but just um, here it goes again. But the other thing is, um, it seems like 
the more that you do this practice, that the practice itself is is pleasurable, like other like eating or sex, and it's it's actually in itself something that's very satisfying. But that makes those uh, it it kind of makes life a little bit more flat, which can be sometimes less enjoyable. <laughs> Is that when I do the meditation in, um, and I have some kind of intention and I'm doing it for um, whatever period of time, mm -hmm. that it seems like um, uh, that I can get through one of the problems, like we were talking about the left brain and right brain, but that I can solve a problem that I've been working on and then. Um, and that seems to give more satisfaction, just to have one of those problems of everyday life that you that you get through. It seems like that for me is very satisfying, like getting past your, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. some of your own problems in your personality, mm -hmm, or, mm -hmm. or doing things that you're really good at, but that provide some kind of value mm -hmm. for others. Or, yeah, I think I, I think I understand what you're asking or what you're you're uh, wanting to explore. Uh, let me comment first on what you uh, said right at the beginning, that meditation can be in and of itself very pleasant and you know a, a delight and satisfactory, and and I think that there's some, I sometimes say meditation is also deep ecology, that in some way you are finding. Uh, we have to find our satisfactions uh, other than in things, in goods and, uh, you know, consumption. And that meditation offers that, a kind of satisfaction in sim simple living and simple pleasure. That, that that in itself, it's great. It's great when you reach the place where, you know, meditation is fun and sweet and, you know, fun maybe not quite the word for it, but sweet, uh, delicious, you know, emptying the, the busy mind. But uh, also, I think it leads to better problem solving, you know, the satisfaction of solving problems in your life or doing good in the world. It's like Thich Nhat Hanh says, you know, to make peace, be peace, you know, that the process of meditation is going to bring you the satisfactions of that you have in the, that you can accomplish in the in the outer world. Does that make sense? Yeah, but, uh, I mean, one of the things that um, like at first when I was meditating, I mean, it was very pleasurable. But now I can um, uh, I, I feel that same kind of um, like the body sense of. vibration or whatever it is that feels um, it feels good but it's not as it, it's not as pleasurable as it was at the beginning but the but the solving mm -hmm. the problems for me is, is more mm -hmm. um, what seems to um, mm -hmm. be more um, pleasurable in a way and mm -hmm. I'm just curious how 
You could have both and. There could be both and. Both, you know, the pleasure of the meditation and the pleasure of solving problems. Did you, were you saying you had something you wanted to add? No? Oh, I thought I heard. Sorry, you were going with me. Oh, (laughs) was it you? No, you know, Einstein uh, said that his best ideas came to him when he was not thinking about things. Right. And that, to me, addresses what you're talking about. We're developing this skill of uh, intuition and understanding (coughs) and wisdom. Um, Unlike the the doing mode of mind, thinking, problem solving, and so forth, and and that can have tremendous rewards in that world. Yeah. I'm also just curious if that's the experience of other people. That, you know, if if that, I, I'm just curious if I'm the only one that feels that way or. Raise your hand if you do. There's a few, yeah? You're not alone. I hope that addressed that. Maybe we can talk about it later more. Anybody else? Other comments, questions? Yes. It's a what? That's attachment. That's attachment. The Buddha said there is one good attachment. <laughs> and that is to, you know. So to see that maybe attachment, it, it also determines that, reflecting on what you said and I I, I I wanted I'm not sure I just was thinking that maybe it was something like um, I was trying to see in my own experience being absolutely thrilled to discover meditation at the beginning and thrilled with the experiences and, that were possible and just finding out all these things the mind could do and these other dimensions of being and and I would say now, definitely, the expression in my life and how that is expressed in my life uh, matters so much. So I don't know if that's sort of what you're talking about. <laughs> well, so continue to evolve I encourage it evolving was never a bad thing well I take that back so there have been some mistakes but I don't think uh, we're on the wrong path with this practice I think we're on the right path Let's sit for just a minute, and then we'll do uh, some walking before dinner.
Thank you for your attention. Enjoy your walking. <laughs>